to another episode of Growing Woman. I am your host, Christina Singh, and Growing Woman is a podcast all about amplifying and uplifting women's voices and stories. Welcome to a new episode. I am so excited. I cannot wait for you to hear this interview with Alana Rosenberg. Alana is a social worker who was working at NYU. She um, built a wonderful career there. And um, when COVID hit, she um, relocated and she decided to change her career to a private practice through the help of some allies along the way. We really get into Alana's history in this episode, but then we also get into how she practices, what her clients are going through, what she's seeing. And then we also very much get into the impact of COVID-19 and um, this pandemic on women and women's mental health, women in the workforce. She shares some stories startling things that she has been through um, when it came to balancing work and being a mother. And this episode is when I was when I was interviewing Alana, it was helpful for me to hear what she was saying. So I hope that resonates with all of you as you are listening to this episode. Um, So enjoy this interview with Alana. But before we dive in, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who supported the announcement last week of the Amplify Her Media podcast network. The response has been so phenomenal, and I'm really excited to see where this network goes and grows and how I can support more women's voices. And um, I have a specific ask for this episode before we jump into the interview with Alana. If you want to see new folks on this show, if you want to see specific topics covered. I have so much in mind that I want to do for this show, but I'd love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out to me on social media at Amplify Her Media, or you can reach out to me via email at Christina at AmplifyHerMedia.com. Yeah, and, and I am really crossing my fingers that I get this newsletter that I've been working on for so long launched soon. Um, because there are going to be more and more updates coming down the pipeline, you guys. This month is going to be exciting. And um, yeah, there's just so much going on. I'm really, really excited to see what happens with all of this. So enjoy this episode. Take a moment for you. Um, I hope that you are asking for what you need this week, going for what you deserve. And um, I hope you enjoy this episode with Alana. Cheers. Alana, welcome to Growing Woman. I am so thrilled to have you joining me today on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. So we met through a mutual connection of ours. Um, I am a part of a networking group. I've talked about it many times on this show. And I asked um, for individuals in the mental health field. And this person connected me with you. And you and I had a great conversation before we decided to do this. And I know that there's been so much evolution in your life and um, so many people's lives over the past two years. And so I felt like it would be super fun to come and uh, have a conversation together and talk about your background because you are um, a social worker, correct? 
So how long have you been in the mental health field? What drew you to this work? How did you get started in this field? Totally. Um, it's a long story, so I'll try to synthesize it. We've got time. <laughs> um, I would say from a very young age, it was clear that I was going to be working in mental health. Like my mom used to joke that I could hang a shingle from our home at the age of, you know, five, because I love to talk to people. I love to hear about their problems, try to problem solve. Um, that was really always my path. I always knew mental health was like a passion for me. Um, when I was in college, I would say two things happened that were really instrumental. Um, I went to Tufts and I majored in um, child development. And, you know, I always thought I was going to major in psychology. But, uh, you know, a friend said to me, the child development program is much better. And, you know, everything that happens to you as a child kind of affects the psychology as an adult. And I thought, okay, great. And then um, the other thing was that uh, my grandmother had gotten sick and I, you know, flew to the hospital. I was living in Israel at the time and I flew to New York to be at the hospital. And I remember my family kept saying to me, like, it's going to be really upsetting to see her. You know, it might be like physically uncomfortable. Mm. And I walked into the hospital room and I was sort of new to seeing, I hadn't seen my grandmother in a long time and she really had decompensated and I had no physical reaction. And I just could like sit in a hospital room that kind of smelled bad, that was kind of gross, that was kind of uncomfortable. And I had no visceral reaction and everyone kind of was like, what's wrong with you? Like, and, and I kind of always said like at that moment, I knew that I kind of had the stomach for it. Mm. Um, meaning that like, I could be in a hospital, I could see someone with like physical suffering and I, I had emotional reactions, I'm human, but I could sit with it in a way that was just sort of, those were things that I was blessed with. That was sort of my superpower that I could do it and not, and not lose myself and just be present. And that sort of inspired me, those two experiences to say like, I wanna go to social work school. Um, and again, like it wasn't that I was, social work school is the way to do what I want to do. But the idea that a social worker can do so many different things and wear so many hats. And I right. wanted to pursue a degree that would open doors and not kind of narrow them. Um, right. So that was sort of where I got my education and then got very lucky and got a job at NYU Medical Center. Um, and again, with the idea of like, I just felt comfortable in a hospital. Um, and I loved being at NYU. I was there for 10 years. Um, I worked inpatient, I worked outpatient, I worked um, with patients undergoing therapy, with medical issues, with end of life. I worked in rehab. Um, wow. Really, I felt like I got such an education. That was more than college, more than grad school. That's where I learned, that's where I developed. You know, I started in my early 20s single and, you know, left there 10 years later with two kids, a husband and a house. Like my, I really wow. grew up there. Um, so it's kind of cool when I think about that I was there as long as I was, you know, in my like childhood school. This was really yeah. like where my skill set was honed in. Um, you know, by the end of my 10 years, I, um, I, my role was sort of the hard cases in the hospital got sent to me. The cases that people didn't know what to do with, they would send my way and I would try to work with the families, work with the teams, try to problem solve. Um, and at that point, I kind of said like, this is the most I wanna do here. I feel accomplished. I like what I've done. My family was moving to New Jersey and I didn't wanna be commuting. Right. Um, 
And so then sort of the next two years was kind of me trying to find my footing. Um, and, and really, I thought that what I wanted to be doing was crisis management, case management stuff. And maybe that was what I thought, where I thought my life would take me. But being a mom and having a pandemic, I couldn't be managing other people's crises on such a reactive basis on a daily basis. It was just, it wasn't good for my family. And I, I took a pause and I said, like, I need to just step away from this and figure out kind of what I want to do. Um, so I did that and that was really, really hard because I was someone who, you know, always had a job, was always working, always had a side job. Um, but I just said like my job right now is my family. Yes. I, so thank you for outlining that because I know that there are some next steps that happened with you after then, but I'd love to go back to really your resilience in, um, the moment with your grandmother and then coming to understand the, the resilience and the strength in yourself of, of just having the, like you said, the, these gifts that you were blessed with to be able to withstand certain situations and be around certain situations that other people maybe wouldn't be able to cope with or, or handle as well as, as you did and you have. Um, when you made the decision to go into social work, like you said, there are so many different routes you can take with social work um, and so many, uh, you know, cases, different types of cases. When um, you were in those environments where there were, you know, active crises or you were taking on different cases um, and when you decided to, to do that, what was that? process like um, when you when you made that decision to and then transitioned into doing the actual work because I'm always really interested in those small steps people take in those transitions like when you made that decision what what steps did you have to take to get to NYU it so I graduated grad school um, right when the it was like a, some financial crisis. I can't even remember which one. <laughs> um, and I, this, I actually moved to Africa for a month and worked in an orphanage because I figured, let me give, let me give the world a month to have job openings. Um, and then when I came back, I I worked at the the organization that had sent me to Africa kind of worked there, but knew that like this was not forever. I didn't want to be doing event planning and fundraising. I really wanted to be doing direct patient care. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, two things happened. I bumped into a friend of a family friend at a condolence visit for someone else. And I mentioned that I was looking for a social work job. And he said, oh, you know, I'm a doctor at NYU. Send me your resume. Um, and then I also had gotten in touch with, I guess it was like a temp agency for social workers. And I got mm -hmm. placed at, you know, an inner city hospital um, in Brooklyn, I want to say. I blanked it out. Um, <laughs> and I worked there for, and, and they, they said like, go there. You know, they tempt me, they placed me there. And it was a really rough place. Um, people weren't particularly nice to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I remember like my supervisor, you know, said, looked at me and said, you're, you're white and Jewish. So people might be mean to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, and I kind of was like, okay, like, let me just, let me do the work and, and let me get the education and we'll see. And then I was really like getting into a groove. I wouldn't say I loved it. Um, and people weren't so nice a lot, um, which Mm -hmm. was really good for me to experience, um, and humbling, which I needed. And then I, someone from NYU called and said like, oh, you know, and I had sent the resume six months ago and they go, oh, we, we want to bring you in for an interview now. And I remember I, I was so like by the book and so linear. I said, I remember I called my mom. And I said, they want me to come in, but I'm not going to come in. I have a job and I have to stay at my job for at least two to three years or someone's going to question why it's on my resume. Mm. And my mom said, but NYU is your dream job. Like, the hospital's closer to where you live. Like, this is where you always wanted to get a job. You're not going to interview. And I thought, okay, I guess I could give it a go. Yeah. Um, and that was it. And, and so then I interviewed. And it, I think I'd interviewed at so many other hospitals. And they would always say, why don't you have hospital experience? And I would say, because you won't hire me. And then I had this experience. And again, NYU was offering me a salary. They were offering me benefits. They were, there was a lot of reasons that it just made a lot more sense for me. It was an opportunity and I, you know, I had to take it. Yeah. I, um, I think that your, your comments about, um, being humbled and like needing that in your experience, um, and working in an environment that was really difficult, um, you know, obviously, from what you've been describing, a lot of the experiences would be objectively difficult for a lot of people um, who maybe aren't in that field or don't have that like ability or that toolkit to to navigate those circumstances. Um, but I I appreciate the fact that you said it was it was humbling and like you needed that experience um, when you were then transitioning into NYU, what did your work look like for people who may not be familiar? Um, you know, what was, what was your specialty? What did your work look like during that time? So it started that I was placed on an orthopedic floor and I would meet with patients after surgery. I would do an assessment and find out kind of what their life was like prior to hospitalization and what their needs would look like upon discharge. And I would set up those services. So a lot of times it was, you know, someone who just came in and had a knee replacement and it was very easy, but then there was like the 91 year old woman who was living completely independently, flipped, you know, broke her hip and could never be alone again. Mm. And how does you as a family come to terms with this? How do you financially make this work? What benefits can we advocate for? What's going to be safe? And that like, we're not moving robots. We're moving human beings who have feelings and who are losing their autonomy, um, having to have conversation with loved ones they've wanted to avoid. Um, and so it really, I was able to delve into my, so my clinical skills and also like kind of training, really learning early on that like so much of the magic of what happens in a hospital is and how it's communicated. And oh, this yeah. floor, this orthopedic floor that I started on 11 East was the best unit I've ever worked at. 
the nurses, the nurse practitioners, the doctors, the social workers, the therapists, we were all friends. We all lifted each other up. We all helped each other out. There was this amazing sense of camaraderie. We all, so when we see each other, we just say, oh, remember 11 East, like this moment in time. And it was the best place to work and learn because people were supporting each other. Mm cheering each other on and also being very professional, but also being like, how's life? What's going on? How's work? Um, it taught me how to be a member of a team. And I met my best, best friend there. And, you know, she's still my best friend. She's a sister to me. Um, and sort of then, you know, she, when she moved to the next role, she said, Alana, I think you should take on this vascular role. It's a little more challenging. So mm -hmm. I took her position and sort of then the, the beauty of being at a place like NYU is that you can move around. So orthopedics was a great place to learn. It wasn't my forever home. Um, right. I wanted bigger, I wanted more challenging, I wanted more complex and kind of like was just open to, is this opportunity gonna teach me something? Am I gonna be challenged? Is this gonna open more doors for me? And if the answer was yes, I would take it on, work on it. And then when I felt like, okay, I have mastery, I'm not challenged, I'm ready for the next, I would take on the next. So what was your hardest challenge or your, your most challenging challenge at um, NYU that you took on? Um, that's such a good question. I think that probably the hardest was like leading up this complex care team because the cases we got were so clinically complicated and, and we had to think creatively and it was the type of patient who's like, I know every social worker in the hospital, nobody gets me, nobody cares for me. So I automatically don't like you. Or I would go try to work with a team and say, I'm here to help with this case. And they say like, oh, you can't help. There's nothing anyone can do to help. Mm. And these were cases like, what do you do with like a homeless IV drug user who needs IV antibiotics to heal an infection, but can't go home with an IV port? Like, how do you solve yeah. that problem? you know, and how do you fly someone home to Italy because that's where their insurance is and that's where their family is on a ventilator? Like, how do you do that? What does that look like? What kind of coordination? Um, it just pushed me. It really, really challenged me, um, but I loved it. Well, it's so interesting um, because I don't think everyone always realizes how logistic we focused social workers are, like how yeah. many logistics are, how you're piecing together a puzzle. And, you know, also it really speaks to the systems that need more support too. And, and the, the ways in which um, our communities need more support. I mean, I love the, the fact that you mentioned the um, homeless person who didn't have a home to go to or didn't have that support. Um, and it really becomes so clear that we need more systems in place to support people wherever they are in their lives. Um, and I'm curious from, you know, you, I, I love that you're speaking about how much you learned and that you are always challenging yourself. Have I know you mentioned that you're very um, solutions focused when you were younger. Have you always been a person that challenges um, themselves to do more, like always looked at a new challenge in your life? You know, I think that 
a lot of people view being challenged as like exposing your vulnerability, right? Because you're like admitting you don't know something. Um, and so I think all my, all my patients know this story because I think it's so funny. I always want to model for my children that there's like really beauty in being bad at something. So I'm, I'm a good driver. I'm horrible at reverse. And I, I will say to my kids, like, what do you want mommy to do? Should I not drive or just like try to figure it out? And they'll always say, no, no, we have to get to school, mommy. You got to back out of the driveway. And it's like, okay, I'll try. Um, and, and we talk about it, how like, I'm not good at getting in, getting in reverse. And, but, but, but that, like, I have to drive and I have to figure it out. And I have to, you know, and I say to them, oh, you know, this, this video kind of helps me, but I, I, I hope I don't drive on the grass today, you know, or like, <laughs> oops, I got to do better next time. But we talk about how it's something that's hard for me and it's bad. You know, I'm not necessarily good at it, but I'm going to still do it. And a few weeks ago, I backed into our garage and my three-year-old was, good job, mommy. We're so proud of you. <laughs> and I, I say that story to say that, like, I think there's beauty in being bad at things. I think when things are, when everything is so perfect and it's so easy, we're not growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I try to model that for my children. I really believe it. Um, and look like, I'm not like, I always want to be challenged. It always has to be so hard. Like there has to be a give and take, but I'm very comfortable kind of not being good at something and knowing that that's where I have the opportunity to get better. I love this so much because so many people do not have that approach. There's this masking. I feel like we all do, um, to, to not ask questions, to not challenge ourselves, to be perfect or to know everything when that's just not the reality. I mean, one of the reasons I started this show was because I felt everyone around me knew all the answers. And I thought, you know, there are all these women accomplishing so much. How do they do all these things? They must know all sorts of things I don't. And sure, there are plenty of people who know plenty of things I don't, but that doesn't mean they know all the things. They may just have access to different tools and to different resources. And perfectly fine if you don't know it all and if you're not so great at something. (laughs) And so I really love that concept Um, and teaching your children and having like their community support come from those moments too. Because when you're sharing, you know, I, I always feel like leaders, managers, directors, whoever's leading a team, when they say, I don't know the answer to this, or they ask someone, um, a question, find, you know, let's figure out the answer to this. I don't, I don't know this thing. I always feel like that is so powerful. Um, and so great to see in a leader. And when you're in your career, were there moments, um, you know, in this career before you transition to this new one, um, you know, this, this new shift, um, were there moments in yourself where you really viewed yourself as a leader and, and what did those moments look like? Totally, totally. Um, you know, one of my most favorite opportunities as a social worker was that, um, I could take on students and I would have interns who I would really like, they would shadow me and I would train them and teach them kind of how to do the work that I do. Um, and I, I got so lucky. I had three rock star students, each one's so different. Um, so that for sure, a hundred percent was like a leadership moment. Um, and then the other one, which I loved was that I would oftentimes I would lead a team meeting. So 
I felt a lot of times as a social worker, you'd walk into someone's room and they would have complaints about everyone. And you're trying to get a team together. You're trying to help a patient feel that they're supported and empowered to leave the hospital and have what they need. So something I took on really is like facilitating these family meetings and getting all the important players in a room to problem solve together. And I loved it. Yeah. I, I enjoy um, that you love teams so much and you love like community so much. Has that always been the case with you? Yeah, I'm social. You know, it's funny when I first, first was like thinking about mental health, I talked to a friend who's a psychologist and I said, I'm going to have a private practice. And she said, Alana, you're going to sit in a room by yourself all day and just talk to, you know, a number of people <laughs> and hear their problems. She's like, you need to work in a system. And that was such good advice and so true for, you know, the time that I was at NYU, I needed to feel like a part of a family, to feel like a part of a team. Yeah. Oh, I totally feel that as well. And um, I'm, I feel like this perfectly leads us into your new chapter and, um, you know, how that come, came about in your life. You had ended your um, kind of career journey with uh, leaving NYU, moving to New Jersey, having time to just pause, focus on support, um, being as, you know, as a parent and, and with your children and being with your children. And then you now have transitioned into this kind of more new role. Can you talk about what that looks like? I mean, we kind of ended with yeah. pandemic Chapter and parenting <laughs> and all of that. So, um, you know, I was so scared to not be working that when I left NYU, I kind of, anytime there was an opportunity, just like jumped at it. And I didn't, I didn't think critically about how it was going to work itself out. And I kind of found myself in two jobs and I won't go into like so many details that just like, were not the right place for me. And I, I just knew that I needed to take this break and figure out my next step, but I'm someone who's always in motion. And that's really, really hard for me, but I felt like I needed to be there for my kids and maybe just saying that made me feel more comfortable not working, but I just said, let me take a break. And I was talking to actually a very dear friend of mine who is a, used to be a colleague at NYU. She and I worked together on a rehab floor. I was the social worker. She was a psychologist. And she said to me something she said to me for the past, you know, six or seven years of like, you need to start doing private practice. And I said, like, I'm not good enough. Like, you know, what, what if people don't like me? Like the billing, you know, I had every excuse under the sun. And she said, like, Alana, like, I have a wait list. Let me just send people to you. I'll sort of supervise, mentor you. You can work under my practice. What's the worst that'll happen? And I said, I guess it would be nice to have, like, one or two clients to see while I figure myself out, you know? And it felt like this is what I've been training for. This is what this has all been leading up to. And two clients became four clients, became eight. And now it's like, I see 30 clients a week, um, which is not normal that it built so quickly. And so much of that, I think, is just a reflection of the times and that we can do everything remotely. And it's easy to go to therapy when it's just, you know, changing your screen. Um, you know, so I always say that. And then my husband says, give yourself some credit. You're probably good. You know, so I imagine, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I imagine that being able to sit with people in true crisis for so many years has made yeah. 
made me comfortable to do the work. Um, and I certainly obviously have the credentialing and the, the skill set to do it. Um, but, but here I am and feeling just so grateful that, you know, Elise pushed me and that I had, you know, my family support and I had the education to do it. I love this so much. And I, I definitely want to talk about what you're seeing now and experiencing, but what I really want to talk about is first is how did you feel when you made that jump to this new practice in, you know, what did that do for your mental health? So first of all, like, I, I want to be like, I, I, it was so strategic and I was so smart and I, I came up with this brilliant idea. Like I did it. Like <laughs> I was like, I, I'll just see one or two patients to see if it's a good fit. And my, my, like Elise was like, this is her idea. And then I kept saying like, is this really happening? Do these people really want to talk to me? And I, I had imposter syndrome. I just, I couldn't believe that that it felt so good. And I couldn't believe that here I could work really hard and also say like, you know what? I can't see clients between 4.30 and 5.30. Cause that's when I pick my kids up from school. And that's like a non-negotiable or, you know, I'm, I will work really hard, but these are my boundaries. And I've never before professionally been able to do that. Um, so it, it feels great. And look, there are parts that are hard. There are things that I, I'm learning as I go, there are humbling moments. It's really challenging, but it feels like in this moment in my life, this is what I should be doing. And I feel grateful that I can. Mm -hmm. Do you feel more confident in your abilities now that you've built up, you know, obviously a larger client base so quickly as well? I know that you mentioned it was a little surprising and your husband was like give yourself some credit but do you feel a bit more confident now yeah yeah <laughs> I definitely do and look like I have supervision I'm always learning but I've also been doing clinical work for so long it's just in a different office it's a different look um yeah and you specialize in um cognitive behavioral therapy correct mm -hmm. what does that mean so basically it's really getting to the thoughts behind our feelings, um, you know, or the thoughts behind our behaviors and trying to, maybe we can change the way we think about things and the way that we talk about ourselves. And that might change the way that we feel. That is like the most basic explanation. So what are some practices that you regularly, you know, teach your clients and, and what are what are some things that regularly come up because we are in such a space where I think we're always where all of us are actively living through trauma and I'm curious you know what are some things that that regularly come up in your practice um this week a major theme has been like setting boundaries mm -hmm. you know and it's not just like set a boundary because if it was so easy people would do it it's like What's your belief behind setting boundaries? What's your judgment behind it? Is that something that feels good? Is that something that feels bad? Let's like kind of really dig at that. And then once we understand the resistance, maybe it's easier to reframe it. Um, but you know, different things come up all the time. Yeah. I think a big theme is how we talk about ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. Um, and, and what feelings that elicits and how we tell our stories. 
you know, I just told my story like a superstar, like, I'm so great. Like, but there were really hard moments. There were moments where I would cry. Like, what am I doing this? I want to pull my hair out. But that's not the story I tell. And I'm not being dishonest. I, I definitely gleaned over those moments. But I always try to look at my story from a strength perspective because it feels nicer. I'm not mm-hmm. acknowledging that the hurt wasn't there. The hurt can hang out over here, but it's not really helping me. It's not helping me be successful. It's not helping me be my best self. So I can sort of say like, okay, failure. Okay, uh, self-doubt. I see you. I know what you're trying to do, but I want to forge ahead. Um, and that's kind of what I model for my clients. Oh, I love this so much. And I think it's really important for people to hear that when there is so much pressure for people to, especially in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of so many women leaving the workforce, um, there's this pressure to keep improving ourselves and like this to to change ourselves. And um, I think what you're talking a lot about is also like inner knowing and and your inner strength and knowing that you have that. does that come up in your practice? And, and have you talked about that with your clients? Like just like the in- intuition that you mm-hmm. have all the answers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think, I think we like exist in this world where people will say like, just shift your mindset, you know, just be positive. You have all the answers and you do, and you should be positive, but there's also like space to acknowledge the hurt, to acknowledge the negative, to acknowledge that like, this is really hard. And sometimes like my clients will come to me and they'll just say like, I've been feeling so depressed and anxious for the past year and a half and I just can't wrap my head around why. And then we'll sort of break it down. And, and, and again, like that is like on the messaging that like they could change their mindset and they could just, everything could be great if they just tried harder. And I'll sort of say like, okay, so tell me a little bit about what, what's going on. And like, oh, like I, I basically have been working from home for two years and I don't really see people. I don't really leave the apartment. I don't really have social interaction. And like, are we doing a favor to, and to, to anyone by saying, well, then you just need to be more positive and be so grateful <laughs> you have a job and you have a roof over your head. Like, I think just like, I try to have my office be a place where we can acknowledge that things sometimes suck and things sometimes are unfair, Mm -hmm. right? We can't always change those things. But then it's like, let's acknowledge it. Let's leave space to feel it. You can feel it. You can feel angry. You can feel frustrated and you can allow yourself to feel the feeling. And then let's go on with the show and try to, how how can we work around it? Um, So yes, I really believe we have the tools internally to figure things out. But I also think like that message needs to be caveated with, but like, but they're also hardship and you can also feel those hardships. And then we're going to dig and see what we can come up with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I myself have done a lot of inner child work and that comes with sitting with my younger self and acknowledging, you know, what little Christina has gone through. And we've talked about inner child work on this show But I think there is power, like you were saying, in acknowledging your hardship and that emotion and feeling it and working through it. And what you were saying earlier, putting, acknowledging something and also letting it know it, you're not, I don't need you right now. I don't need this particular moment right now. You're trying to protect me, anger, fear, all of these things. 
And I appreciate you being this incredible warrior for me, but you can just kind of sit over here right now because I just don't, I don't need you to serve me at the moment. Totally. I, yeah. And I, something I really wanted to talk to you about was um, women, you know, really that are leaving the workforce. And over the past two years, I think I read something last week that said like 54 million women left the workforce around the world over the past, you know, since the pandemic hit. And a lot of that has to do with childcare um, and access to childcare, access to services to support mothers and, and women working around their families. And it sounds like you had a similar experience of um, taking a pause. And I wanted to ask you about your experience because I know that you now have re-entered the workforce in a very different way, but what was your experience like during this time? Oh my goodness. So what I'll say is when I worked at NYU, I had amazing systems in place to be super successful. I had a wonderful nanny who came before I left for work and was there when I got home. And I was really able to comfortably be at work and then, and trust that my kids were being cared for. And, and that was, that was huge. And then when we moved, which sort of coincided with the pandemic, we had inadequate childcare. We just didn't have a system in place. And then the world shut down. And then I was working from home. So I kind of could watch the kids and that would be the safest, right? Cause we wouldn't have anyone in the home. And we were, you know, that was the most important and do my job. And I could do all the things I couldn't do any of them particularly well. Right. Um, so that was sort of like the, the struggle. And there were like moments where, you know, I remember like in maybe April, 2020. So really like at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a work call and I actually like wasn't watching my kids in that moment. I think my, my husband or my sister were watching them. And one of my kids screamed and made noise. And my boss said to me, you don't hear Jerry Springer in the background of my phone. Why am I hearing your children on the background of yours? No. And I, and, and I, I, I didn't have the words. And, and I kind of just said, like, because my kids don't come with mute buttons. Um, which was the best I could come up with in that moment. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and then, you know, then I cried a lot. I had an ugly moment and sort of regrouped and, and called her back and just sort of said, like, if you're ever asking me to choose between work and my children, it's going to be my children. And, yeah. and that, that's, that's who you're, you've hired. And she's like, oh, I didn't mean anything. I'm so sorry. But I sort of like set that boundary. But that was sort of the tension that I was living with. Um, and, and, and then sort of like another thing, my, we had gotten into a, like a bad car accident at some point during the pandemic. Everyone was absolutely fine. But I became very, um, I wanted to be the one driving my kids. That was sort of like, that was like a piece that I wasn't willing to let go of. Mm -hmm. um, so I was kind of driving myself not pun intended, I was driving myself a little crazy because I was driving my kids and trying to work full time and had a, a nine to five job. So it really wasn't a fair of me because I could do it that I was doing it. Um, but I, I just didn't feel comfortable having anyone else driving my kids to and from school. Um, 
And so then when I was like, something's not working and it was like, you need a full-time job, but I need a full-time job that lets me drive my kids to and from school. Like I could, what I wanted didn't exist unless I created it. Mm -hmm. And so I kept saying, but like, I make X amount of money and I want to make X amount of money, but I want, like, I wanted my cake and to eat it too. And even though I, I, I have like, you know, complicated feelings towards my past employer, I also wasn't being reasonable because I wanted to be able to not color in the lines. Mm. And the only way you can really do that is if you create your own coloring book. And, and so that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like another pivotal moment where I had met someone who could be a really good partner in terms of childcare. Um, she was really, really able to help me with the things I needed help with. And I, I, I spoke to my husband. I said, do you think we should hire her? Because, you know, what if I'm not working? And he said, Alana, you cannot work unless we have childcare. So, you know, if you want to launch this thing and I, and I believe in you, the first investment is that there's childcare so you can do it. Right. And, and that was an investment. And financially, I always thought, and it, it comes from great privilege that I could do that. And I recognize that. And I, but I also know that I wouldn't have been able to build a practice if my kids weren't taken care of. Oh my gosh. You're touching on so many things. Number one, that comment from your past employer is insane. insane. And I've heard of so many other women facing the same things. So I just really would love to say, like, if you hear someone with their children in the background, please don't say something like that. Please acknowledge that everyone's trying their best and raising children under incredibly difficult circumstances, nearly impossible circumstances. The other one I would often get is, can't you give them a lollipop? Oh my God. Like I could write a book and we could do a whole podcast just <sighs> on, on co- rude comments that women, women get, you know? I truly cannot. I feel very fortunate that because I still very, very, very much feel the pressure when my, you can hear my child in the background of any calls when he comes in and I I will never say no to my child coming in and wanting me. Like I'll always have him because I'm his mom. Um, And I, I have been very fortunate in that no one has said anything about that. I feel very fortunate to be supported in that way, but there's always the thought, what are they thinking right now? Like what, what is somebody thinking? The fact that you've had people say things, actively say things, please don't do that. (laughs) It is, that's beyond rude when you're trying your best to survive in impossible circumstances. Wow. Um, I'm blown away that you've had to experience those things. And, but I know they're real and out there. And I've heard so many other women have to experience the same. I mean, I'll tell you a story. Sorry. I'm like, yeah, no, no, go, go ahead. I once was considering applying for a promotion at actually at NYU and basically was told like, well, what's going to happen with your kids? What's going to happen on the weekends? You know, it's very hard for breeders to be promoted. And I, and I, I, you know, and like asking me how I was going to handle the commute. And, and this was like, this conversation I think was part of me, like feeling like maybe it's time to, but, um, you know, and, and, and it was so interesting because my husband actually switched jobs 
over COVID, which was a wonderful opportunity for him. And I, because we both work from home, could, you know, really was privy to a lot of the interview process. And I had this moment, like, has anyone asked him how this is going to affect the family? You know, like, has anyone said like, and how's this going to affect your childcare? And it's like, you know, you know, like nobody, nobody cared. There was no discussion. There was no like, you know, and I'm so happy that that's his world and that that's, but like, it really makes you think like every time as a woman and obviously this is a generalization, these are the conversations that people feel really comfortable having and it's so inappropriate wildly inappropriate I'm like getting hot listening to it like yeah. I, like the term breeders mm-hmm. I cannot believe someone said that oh, that is absolutely wild and you're 100% right never has my husband um been asked in his well he has his own business but his clients are never asking him about you know his family and I feel very fortunate that my husband took time off when we had a new baby and that we split things equally like I feel very fortunate to um have him communicate those things to people um but no one's ever asked him about any sort of changes he's making to his business and how it would affect his family and Yet I am always thinking about those things um, whenever I'm making changes to my schedule or launching a new project or adjusting anything. I, um, I also feel that, you know, the, the comments you made about childcare, like none of this would be possible without childcare. Um, that is, those are such strong comments because I feel the exact same way. I would not be able to work full time. I would not be able to be, um, you know, having efforts towards my own business on the side, none of those things would be possible if I didn't have childcare. And I think that in so many cases that we've seen over the past two years, it's been almost uh, assumed that women would take on the responsibility that they have And we've seen that actively by women leaving the workforce. There's been this assumption that women will take on that responsibility. They can uh, carry the weight. But now what we're seeing is there's a, you know, disparity in uh, the the workforce in gender. And and that's starting to widen that disparity. How are you feeling now that you are back in the workforce and, and you are supporting yourself in these ways and you do have childcare. How, what does that mean for your family? What does that mean for you and your mental health? I mean, it is, it is a blessing and I don't take it for granted. Um, I was a disaster. Like I was failing on all fronts and I was trying so hard, mm-hmm. but it was a setup for failure. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, I would talk on the phone with my friends and I'd be like, I don't know why I'm so stressed. And they'd say like, because you don't have any childcare. That's why you're so stressed. And I'd be like, no, no, it can't be that, you know? <laughs> and I, I just couldn't wrap my head around that I couldn't be in two places doing two things well at the same time. And now that I'm doing something that I love and I'm helping people and I have people helping me and helping the kids that my, my children who I love. And 
I feel awesome. I feel really grateful. I feel grateful that when I, you know, at night, when I'm seeing patients, I say to my, um, my kids, like mommy's going upstairs to help people figure out their problems. And mm-hmm. I think, great, you know, and it, and, and it feels like when you take care of the home, when you have systems in place, you can be so successful, but it's really hard to do it when home is a wreck, when it's a mess, you know? Yes. I mean, you also mentioned your privilege in this position. And I think that is something to really talk about here too, is that there are so many women who are not privileged enough to have the funds to hire childcare providers. Um, Maybe they had family coming over, but it's too much of a risk now to have that family come over you know, or maybe they don't have the funds, uh, everything under the sun. Um, Maybe their partner isn't as supportive as you were and said, you know, I love that your husband said, you have to have childcare to do this. He didn't say figure it out with both. Um, And I think that's, you know, a great thing to say. Not everyone has that. But also what we all don't have is more support on a state, city, federal level for families right now. Um, and for moms, new moms, working moms, just families and children in general. Talk about a humbling moment. You know, I remember re-entering the workforce after my first maternity leave. And for the first time, really understanding sexism. Like I always understood that sexism existed, but I kind of felt like that was my parents' generation. My mom did the fight. Like, I can do anything a man can do. And like, having this moment of like, no, I can't. Like, this is a lot harder. And it was a really humbling moment because I really, I never saw that there was like that glass ceiling. And then mm-hmm. I became a mom and I, my, my, and as you know, I've told you with every decision I made, it was sort of like, well, this open doors or closed doors. Mm-hmm. And I always just wanted to feel like I had choices and opportunities and being a mom is the best thing I, the job that I'm best at. And, and, you know, my biggest privilege. Um, but I, I did notice like, oh, like if my, if my, you know, if my kid is sick, I need to take a vacation day to take them to the doctor. That seems crazy, yeah. you know, and I hear the other, the other sides of it. But like, oh, as it turns out, six to eight weeks of leave isn't really enough time to bond with your child and like to fit into your work pants again and to figure out how you're going to pump while you're, you know, a nurse and all the things like this is really hard. And oh, oh, there, there's actually no room for me to pump. Yeah. And there are no systems in place to welcome, you know, I would, I don't know about these institutions now, but there are no systems in place to welcome new mothers back into the workplace and say, okay, here's the area where you can go pump. Here's all the resources we have for you. Um, If your baby gets sick, here are the policies we have in place where you can have flex time. Like there's nothing like that, that I've seen in larger institutions. I I'm, I'm sure they're out there somewhere um, that support families in this way, but they're so critical to ensuring that women can have that equity in the workplace since they're in that position where, you know, they're the people who are growing humans in their bodies and need to go pump and are transitioning back into the workplace after leave if they've even been offered leave. 
And um, I really appreciate you being so transparent. And I completely cannot believe we're nearly at our time right now. Um, <laughs> but I guess I have two more questions for you. Yeah. Um, one having to do with, you know, uh, your, your practice, are you, um, you know, working with, with any moms right now, uh, going through this? Yeah. What are you sure. seeing? You know, I'm seeing moms not understanding why they're failing or why they're feeling Right. And so again, that feeling of like, there's something pathologically wrong with me that this is so hard. And, and just that the relief of me saying, you know, it's actually quite challenging to work from home with a child and to care for the child and to not have boundaries and to not have systems in place. You're actually normal to feel it. We can work on it, but that's like a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance. Um, because I think the narrative that's being fed is like, just try harder, just, just muddle through. And, and I think just to yeah. give some of the space to say like, well, this is actually kind of terrible. That's okay too. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's impossible. I mean, I had my son home yesterday and my husband and I split the day because he couldn't go back to daycare until he was fully better. Understandable. Totally, totally. But I feel so fortunate we can be flexible and because yeah. it's nearly impossible circumstances right now. Um, and then my last question, thank you so much for, for answering that. And then my last question to you that I ask everyone on this show, um, is about your, um, allies. So do you have any women in your life? And I, I already know you do from the, some of the people you've spoken about, but do you have any women in your life who have been allies and who you can identify, um, on this show who have, who have been there for you? I'm so lucky. I, I really, it would take another hour for me to list the women in my <laughs> life, who, like inspire me, who support me, who are there for me. My husband like jokes, he's like, you have a hundred conversations on your phone every day. <laughs> I have an army of these women who I admire, who lift me up, who I lift them up. Um, I'm so, so grateful. I also have an amazing mom, an amazing sister, an amazing sister, two sister-in-laws, two mother-in-law. You know, I, I just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm very blessed in that way. And those are my female allies. And I, you know, my husband is my rock and, you know, he, he's my ally and my, my babysitter has become my ally because I, again, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have her, you know, watching the kids when I need that, that support. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way about uh, our daycare provider. I would build a freaking shrine to her if I could. Like she is everything for our family. And yeah, thank you for, thank you for mentioning all of those incredible people. If people would like to work with you, are you taking any new clients right now? I mean, you seem to be very busy, but if people would like to work with you, um, where can they find you? Um, my, my website is Alana Rosenberg, LCSW.com. Um, and you can email me Alana Rosenberg, LCSW at gmail.com or look me up on psychology today. Um, and I'm, I really try to, to see where I can take on new patients, where we can find space and where we can find time. And I, I try to really honor when clients are like, I really need therapy, but like, these are my limitations. These are the times, this is the amount of money I can spend. I try to work with people because I think we're in a mental health crisis in our country. And, you know, if I can do 
tiny bit, tiny bit, I want to do it. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that. And for all of the, the wisdom you've imparted on, you know, the show today. And I'm just so grateful to have care providers like you who really understand so much of what we're all going through. And, and thank you for sharing your story and your journey. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was so much fun. Yeah. To everyone who um, is listening, please never forget that your story matters and you matter. And we will see you on the next episode of Growing Woman is brought to you by Amplify Her Media. Amplify Her Media is a media company dedicated to amplifying and uplifting women's voices and stories. Follow along for more at AmplifyHerMedia.com or follow along on Instagram at AmplifyHerMedia.